Peter asked, Why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, were not the proceeds at your disposal? How is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You did not lie to us, but to God. Now when Ananias heard these words, he fell down and died. And great fear seized all who had heard of it. The young men came and wrapped up his body, then carried him out and buried him. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. Peter said to her, tell me whether you and your husband sold the land for such and such a price. And she said, yes, that was the price. Then Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to put the spirit of the Lord to the test? Look. The feet of those who buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down at his feet and died. And when the young men came in, they found her dead. So they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear seized the whole church and all who heard of these things. The word of God for the world. and Sapphira that Julie just read makes me cringe. (laughs) Maybe I cringe because I've heard it used or misused as fodder for some pretty awful guilt-dumping stewardship sermons. (laughs) I've heard preachers climb self-righteously into the role of Peter and enumerate with great ferocity the terrible consequences God will rain down upon those who withhold from the Lord any of their financial resources or time or talents or firstborn children. (laughs) If you apply this theology literally, how many of us would actually still be walking around? (laughs) Can I get an amen? assertion fit into the picture of a loving, grace-filled God? And who really stands to benefit from these kinds of sermons anyway? Maybe I'm jaded. Perhaps I'm being too hard on the preachers. But I think Zapper theology is irresponsible and misses the point entirely. Still, this is not an easy tale. It makes my spirit squirm. I resist looking into its mirror. Much easier to gaze out its window and point the finger at others who I perceive are not giving their all to God instead of facing my own deceptive deeds. Maybe I cringe because of the truth in this story that I must face when I sit with it long enough to let it teach, confront, 
and convict me. How do we make sense of what happens in the story? What does it teach us as individuals? What makes this story a defining moment of the church? To be responsible interpreters, we have to look carefully at what the text says. If you have your Bibles, how many, I won't ask you how many, uh, find Acts 5, 1 to 11, which is what Julie just read, and follow along with me. Here's how the story goes. Ananias and Sapphira are committed members of the Christian community in Jerusalem, which is growing like wildfire. Though its leaders have been arrested for healing and preaching, nothing has curbed its amazing growth and infectious spirit. The community adopts a central practice. They hold back nothing they possess. They share all they have so that none of them lacks any basic need. This practice is built on trust in God and each other. Now check out chapter 4, verse 32. The connections between trust, prayer, and generosity make them one with each other in heart and soul. Everyone has enough. No one lacks, no one hoards. All are fed physically, emotionally, and spiritually. Unity prevails. In verse 37, Barnabas is hailed as a poster child of the community, a member who sells his property and gives every penny to the community, a shining example of the trust and unity that enlivens and sustains them. Ananias and Sapphira are foils to Barnabas. They too own property which they sell. But unlike Barnabas, they conspire to keep for themselves a portion of the proceeds and to deceive the community about how much they were actually paid. When Ananias brings their offering to the public gathering, he indicates that they are giving all of what they earned. Peter confronts this lie. Who knows how he did And asserts that Ananias has not only deceived the community, but worse, has deceived the Holy Spirit. Whereupon Ananias drops dead. After which there is much scurrying around getting him buried while the uh oh squad <laughs> stands around dumbfounded, wringing their hands as terror grabs hold of them. Three hours later, in rushes Sapphira. Peter sets a trap for her by asking if the offering Ananias brought was the full amount they earned. She confirms Ananias' price. Peter confronts her with their conspiracy to tempt the Holy Spirit, informs her that those who buried her husband are waiting for her, and she too gives up the ghost. The same scrambling around to bury her erupts, and the same terror ensues. There you have it. Two lies, two confrontations, two people dead, a community grappling with shock fear and onlookers wondering what just happened. Up to now, the fledgling community has encountered threats from, the, from outside itself, questions by religious leaders, incarceration of its own leaders. These threats define it as a unique community of courage, power, prayer, and radical generosity, a community whose God is not to be trifled with. But this threat 
In chapter 5 is an inside job, an internal spiritual threat that comes from its own members, shaking it to the core, tearing at the unity and trust necessary for its very survival. As we talked about this passage in the free-for-all this week, part of the conversation focused on Peter. Someone asked, what do you make of the fact that Peter is the one accusing Ananias and Sapphira of lying to the Holy Spirit? If you think about it, Peter recently stood around a campfire watching as Jesus was being led away to trial. When questioned about his personal knowledge of Jesus, he denies knowing Jesus. Peter lies. So what right does Peter have to point his finger at Ananias and Sapphira? For that matter, why is Peter still alive? Peter does not drop dead after he lies. Instead, Peter goes to Galilee where John's gospel recounts that he has a forgiving encounter with the risen Lord. Peter gets a second chance. Given his own past lies and subsequent forgiveness, Peter seems a trifle hard on his own parishioners. At Free For All, someone took up for Peter, suggesting that Peter's lie was not premeditated like Ananias and Sapphira, that put on the spot and in the heat of the moment, fearful for his life, he just panics. Why Peter lies may matter less than his struggle in heart and soul after the cock crows. Perhaps Peter's confrontational zeal in this story stems from his personal battle to forgive himself for his own life. Perhaps Peter knows firsthand how toxic a lie can be to one's own spirit, to the holy, life-giving energy that enables love, connection, and purpose. Maybe he realizes what betrayal does to community. Peter's own dark night of the soul might have enabled him to recognize the furtiveness in Ananias and Sapphira. Perhaps personal experience allows him to spot their deception for the act of violence it is, both to themselves, their individual souls, and to the community to which they belong. Peter's approach is to publicly confront them, to call them out. He even sets a trap for Sapphira. One commentary I read suggested that Peter's public confrontation resulted in such deep mortification that they died of shock as a result of their public humiliation. Other commentaries claim that their deaths, deaths resulted from their own sudden realization of the gravity and grievous nature of selling their own souls. Regardless of why they died, their deaths raised significant questions about how we judge and confront the behavior of others and in what spirit we judge and confront. The Christian community must continually grapple with the tensions inherent in how we hold each other accountable for breaches of integrity and inconsistent commitment. Peter's approach had a terrifying effect. How do we measure Peter's actions in light of the way Jesus dealt with was Peter able to offer the same sort of grace, forgiveness, and restoration that he received from Jesus? What might have happened to Ananias if Peter had taken him aside, put his hands on his shoulders, 
looked deep into his eyes and said, Ananias, do you love our Lord? Then help us feed his sheep. Ananias, do you really love him? Then help us feed his lambs. Ananias, do you love Jesus Christ with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength? Then give everything you are and have to feed his people. How do we confront each other in a way that offers grace and leads to repentance, to a change of heart and mind, to transformation? This story raises that question. How a congregation answers it shapes and defines the nature of their community. Now, I want to take Ananias and Sapphira off the hook, so let's leave Peter and return to them. And we're going to be an equal opportunity offender this morning. Their deception put at risk the very trust on which the early Christian community is founded. The issue is not that they kept back a portion of their proceeds. Peter says, Ananias, property is yours. What you do with it is yours to decide. No, the issue here is the willful decision to lie about the amount. Lying has consequences. To choose to deceive puts an individual on a slippery slope. I'm not suggesting that, to be honest, we must voice every thought that comes in our head. All of us are put on the spot from time to time with the equivalent of, does this make me look fat? Questions. <laughs> and we have to make decisions about how open we're going to be. But when we give ourselves wiggle room by assigning colors to our lies, some white and some black, we trivialize the issues related to relational trust that this story addresses. What we have here is a willful decision to deceive others about who they are as people of faith. They present themselves disingenuously, renege on commitments, and violate community values. This kind of deception has real consequences in real time. Our political, religious, and family ground is littered with those whose deceit has brought them to their knees, killed reputations, destroyed relationships, altered futures forever. I live in a state whose governor told his own staff that he was walking the Appalachian Trail while he was actually with his mistress in Argentina. He deceived himself into thinking that no one would find that out. And years later, South Carolina is still dealing regularly with the ramifications of this man's deception. Perhaps you yourself know what it is like to deceive or be deceived. Few of us get through this life without experiencing both sides of that reality. Willful deception hurts. It poisons relational waters and brings destruction to all it touches. Betrayal of trust has a toxic ripple effect in a community, threatening its core values and practices and harming relationships, sometimes irreparably. What a tangled web we weave when first we practice to deceive. I once worked with a person who, for whatever reason, had practiced deceiving for so long that he no longer seemed to know the difference between truth and falsehood. He lost his ability to take responsibility for his own actions, 
telling one person one thing and another something else, triangulating relationships, pitting people against each other, spinning his way through life. Distrust and discord followed him around. The organization he led began to crumble from the inside out. Chaos ensued. To this day, that organization's participants struggle with whether or not they can trust each other. One person's inability to tell the truth about issues and problems, his choices to cover things up and hold back important information were, and continue to be, toxic to the core of the organization he has long since left. Deception harms the core of communities and is powerful precisely because it is usually hidden deep within and affects and infects communities slowly from the inside out, like cancer. Several years ago, our landscaper informed us that one of our largest trees was diseased and had to come down. The tree looked perfectly healthy to us, but we trusted the man and had it removed. When the work was done, I went out to look at the stump. In the middle of it was a large hollow space, about six inches in diameter. The core that, that sustained that tree's life was empty. The tree was sick with dry rot. It looked healthy on the outside, but was dying on the inside. I think this is what happens when we deceive ourselves and others. We die on the inside as the very spirit that enlivens, enlivens and connects ourselves to God, to others, and to ourselves ebbs away. This is what happens to Ananias and Sapphira. Read it carefully. The scripture does not say that God has anything to do with their death. When confronted, the literal Greek is that they gave up the ghost. That means their life force leaves them. They deflate. Willful deception not only harms the community, it kills the individual spirit. In the case of Ananias and Sapphira, this death looks sudden, but we know nothing else about their story. Maybe deception was a pattern for them, a part of who they were. Maybe they've been dying for a long time on the inside. We cannot know. But the basic issue remains. They deceive themselves and thus deceive the Spirit of God that dwells within. Ananias and Sapphira choose to sell their souls and buy a farm. As you get to know me, you will discover that I have somewhat of a lead foot and also a streak of impatience with those who do not share this tendency. <laughs> Thursday, on my way up here, I was in impatient gear driving behind a Jeep who was puttering along the speed limit. There's no way to pass a slowpoke while driving on Locust Hill Road. So I was, full confession, tailgating. Close enough to read the fine print on the Jeep's bumper stickers. The most prominent one read, Zombie Outbreak Response Vehicle. <laughs> My first thought was, well, those zombies are going to have to be really slow for this vehicle to have any effect on that response. <laughs> and then I thought, that's a picture of what happens to Ananias and Sapphira. They gave up the spirit that connected them to the giver of life, the animating breath 
that tethered them to the pneuma, the breath of God. They died inside like zombies whose own inner spirit dies and who live by sucking the life out of the living. When we fail to honestly face what is inside of us, that deception kills our souls and sucks the life right out of us. When we choose to hide and deceive instead of getting real, we slide farther down that slippery slope toward spiritual suffocation. We risk betraying those who rely on us, who trust us the most, and we ultimately damage the very community that supplies us with belonging, love, and acceptance. When we cannot acknowledge our own inner selfishness, our own insecurity, our own mistakes, our own emotional and physical neediness, our own pain, we deceive ourselves. And the Spirit of God is not in We zombify. Deception is ultimately a choice. And choosing that slippery slope kills our souls and saps the life from our spirits. You don't have to drop dead physically to die spiritually. So what's the alternative? Where's the good news? How do we resist selling our souls? How do we resist the urge to condemn another's failing? How do we as the community of believers gathered in this place honor each other and hold each other accountable for our commitments to one another and to God? How do we stay true to our values and choose the path of integrity in our dealings with each other and with God? How do we get and stay real? I'm going to let Brene Brown preach the rest of this sermon. Brene Brown is a sociologist and internationally renowned speaker, writer, and researcher who studies what it means to live a wholehearted life. In her book, The Gifts of Imperfection, she talks about courage, connection, shame, freedom, trust, and vulnerability. Listen to her wisdom. Of this I am actually certain. A deep sense of love and belonging is an irreducible need of all men, women, and children. We are biologically, cognitively, physically, and spiritually wired to love, to be loved, and to belong. When those needs are not met, we don't function as we were meant to. We break. We fall apart. We numb. We ache. We hurt others. We get sick. To become fully human means learning to turn my gratitude for being alive into some common concrete good. It means growing gentler toward human weakness. It means practicing forgiveness of my and everyone else's hourly failures to live up to divine standards. It means learning to forget myself on a regular basis in order to attend to the other selves in my vicinity. It means living so that I'm only human does not become an excuse for anything. It means receiving the human condition as blessing and not curse in all its achingly frail and redemptive reality. To love someone fiercely, to believe in something with your whole heart, to celebrate a fleeting moment in time, to fully engage in a life that doesn't come with guarantees, 
These are risks that involve honesty, vulnerability, and often pain. But I'm learning that recognizing and leaning into the discomfort of vulnerability, choosing authenticity over deception, teaches us how to live with joy, gratitude, and grace. <laughs>